My name is Brian Berger. I'm one of, the, one of your pastors here at Gilbert's. Uh, if you're new to our church, I'm not a regular communicator here. This is maybe once or twice a year that I get a chance to preach. I'm really excited because I love this series that we are kicking off today, Love Walked Among Us, based on uh, a book by Paul Miller. Uh, so I would encourage you, kind of my first announcement is as we go through this series together, this is a really helpful book, and you'll hear a lot of the same illustrations and themes that you're going to hear in the sermons in the book, but we would recommend reading the chapters uh, before you come on Sunday. And so, obviously, today, well, maybe some of you, if you're uh, connected on social media and Facebook, I think we put out a post, have uh, got that book already. If you haven't, go ahead and go over to the bookstore if you can, pick that up. Um, I'm excited for this morning. Uh, I, was, I was really hoping, because this is one of my favorite books, to get a chance to, to teach in this series. Uh, and I didn't make the list. And so I looked on the list, like, where am I preaching? And I'm, I wasn't until yesterday. <laughs> That's not exactly how I had dreamed this thing up. So Tyler told me I shouldn't tell you that, but I'm just covering myself <laughs> in case I lay an egg. You guys will know. Uh, I have this feeling when we come together on Sunday, and it's a lot like the feeling uh, that, uh, if I would describe getting out of a movie theater, you've been sucked into a movie, like this alternate reality, you've lost sense of time, is it morning, is it evening, you are in that movie with them, you are having anxiety and adrenaline responses and laughter, you're in the movie, you're caught up in it. And then when it ends and you hit that door, and it's like, oh, reality. It's noon. I thought it was nighttime, right? And oh, the real world. Here's reality. And I think of that when we come to worship, because a lot of times during our week, we get caught up into an alternate story, a story that says it's about who dies with the most toys and the most trophies and the most achievements, about what you can get. It's a very me-centered story. And we get caught up in it, and I feel like when we come to church on Sunday, it's that, oh yeah, oh yeah moment that wakes us up together as I listen to you sing the reality of the truth of Jesus being on the throne, that the, the essence of life is love and harmony and shalom that comes with the reconciliation to our Creator. So I'm excited for us to continue worshiping together. I'm excited to get into the Word. I'm just really excited. We, uh, we are not working through uh, the gospel verse by verse through the entire uh, gospel. We're doing something a little bit different. If you think of uh, the gospels as documentaries, this really helps me wrap my mind around uh, what the gospels are. They're documentaries on the life of Jesus. And there's different themes. Each author and director of a documentary is trying to make a different point about the subject. Matthew is trying to make a different point than Luke and than John. And I think of the different themes of Jesus. Uh, I think we could do a documentary on his miracles. I think we could do a documentary on how he was drawn to the least of these, on his wisdom, uh, on his death and resurrection on how Jesus was, uh, maybe a documentary on all the fulfillment of Jesus being the Jewish Messiah and how he was fulfilling the scriptures. Those would be all great documentaries. Uh, the documentary that Paul Miller has kind of put together is a compilation of all the moments where Jesus 
expressed love in kind of normal, routine, mundane, everyday life. And this is significant for us. Uh, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is uh, the image of God. Nobody has seen God, but the Son has made Him known to us. And so as we look upon the Son, we get to see the very nature and expression of God. That's why I'm super excited. I do, I just remembered that I have one announcement that I skipped, and I just kind of jumped right into the sermon there. We're going to rewind and go back. Uh, one of the ministries that I get to oversee in adult discipleship is women's ministries. Uh, two times a year, we do classes that are about six weeks long, Wednesday morning and Wednesday evening. The times are, let's see, 9.30 and 7 p.m. Uh, and so, this week on Wednesday, 9.30 and 7 p.m. is actually the big gathering. If you're a gal in the, in the um, congregation that wants to get connected, wants to enjoy some food and fellowship and to be kind of stirred up in your affections for Jesus and connectedness to the church, Wednesday is a great opportunity to do that, 9.30 a.m., 7 p.m., and then this gathering is going to launch kind of our classes. So ladies, Make sure you see that in the bulletin right under women, okay? Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do our best to work through this scene where we get to see Jesus love a widow. Let me pray. Father, we want to uh, slow down um, to hear you. We want to experience your presence We want to feel your love. Uh, God, it's undeniable as we look at the, not only the works of Jesus and what he's done for us in bringing us to salvation, but in the ways in which he walked, in the ways in which he worked. Um, Sometimes I look at my, my own life as your child, and I don't see... Um, this reflection, this beauty, this glory of of love. And so I'm praying for myself and I'm praying for my brothers and sisters this morning that your spirit would meet us, would slow us down enough to really see the beauty of this scene, that we could smell and taste and feel uh, the presence of Jesus on the pages of Luke. And we pray that by the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, It was said that um, a good disciple's face was covered by the dust of his rabbi's, uh, the dust from his rabbi's shoes. Now, maybe the saying went sandals. I don't know what they called them, Birkenstocks. I, I don't know the right language. But the idea is that a disciple followed closely behind his teacher, that a disciple would imitate his life memorize his teachings, and carry on his way and his, his ministry. So Christians, you, before you were ever called a Christian in the book of Acts, before you were ever called a Christian, you were called a disciple. And that implies that we follow Jesus closely, close enough to get the dust on our face. And that's what I think Paul Miller does brilliantly, uh, is he tries through... Uh, bringing historical and, uh, 
and uh, geographical insight, he tries to get us in the scene with Jesus. Like, what are not the obvious things that are just on the pages, but what can we assume is happening based on the, the times and the culture and the location of, of, of the scene? So I'm going to try my best to recreate this scene for you so that we can get really close to Jesus. So let's start by reading. God's Word, Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and he touched the bier. And the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. Let's start with verse 11 here. I'm going to try and retell the story, but slowing down. So often, I think we're, we have a destination, we have a goal, we're racing through life. I'm experiencing this as a parent, that all of a sudden we're talking about college and I'm thinking, what in the world just happened to my kindergartner? Like, we've just, I've just spent each day trying to get her to soccer practice, trying to get her to school, you know, and then all of a sudden, she's turning 16 and going to drive. And I know a lot of you can relate. I'm trying with my own walk with Christ and my own life as a parent to slow down. And there's things that we can see when we slow down that we race by every day. Moments with your family that you race through every day that are beautiful and precious. And when we slow down, we can enjoy them. I've been trying to walk more. And it's amazing the things that I typically make the comment, I'm born and raised in Arizona, that Arizona is ugly. Like I go any other place on earth and I'm like, this is way more beautiful than Arizona. I've been taking walks, and I find myself saying, this is beautiful. Like, the desert is really beautiful. So we're going to slow down. We're going to take a stroll through this scene so that we can see things that maybe stop us and make us pause a little bit, things about Jesus that are beautiful. It says, soon after he went to, uh, to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd was with him. Jesus is coming from Capernaum. And he had just healed the centurion's servant. And he's going with this great crowd. Now, why is there a great crowd with him? He's healing. He's feeding. He's teaching. He has this wisdom and this authority in, when he teaches the scriptures people haven't heard. He's, he's raising sick people. So it's very common for in the scenes with Jesus, there to be 
over 3,000 people, up to 20,000 people following him around. And so we can assume that when it says a great crowd, every time that term great is used, it's referring to thousands, a great multitude. Now, from Capernaum to Nain is about a 30-mile walk. And if you've been to Israel, I haven't, going in March. Anyone going with me? All right, where's a couple? Uh, from Capernaum to Nain is not like a flat, we're not walking on a paved sidewalk, right? This is hills, this is mountains, it's most likely little walking trails with thousands of people for 30 miles. And nobody has New Balance, <laughs> bad footwear, probably thirsty, probably hungry, probably some disputing. I mean, if people are trying to figure out who Jesus is, I can imagine there being some debates going on in the crowd. And I know just from being, like, I, I spent seven years uh, teaching, and I know I see, even as I scan the crowd, I can see my teachers out there. When you're surrounded by 27 needy little people, do you get worn out? Yes, exhausted, right? Jesus is surrounded by thousands of needy people with questions, with sicknesses and illnesses. All right, so we're painting the scene. It's probably dusty. They're tired and they're thirsty. And it says that as he drew near to the gate, this is the gate that leaves Nain, at the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the son of a mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. This is the scene. Two crowds are come together. A considerable crowd, which probably means hundreds. Most of Nain was probably there for this funeral procession. Okay, so we have hundreds coming out the east gate, and we have Jesus and his multitude, or thousands, coming upon the hundreds. Okay, this is the scene that Luke is, is showing us here. Uh, and it says that uh, it's a funeral procession. Now, we have in our mind, when we say funeral, you typically think modern, Western, American funeral. We have images in our mind of what this looks like. It's probably quiet. It's probably sniffling. People, you know, aren't, aren't wailing or crying. They're trying to hold back tears. That's a part of kind of the typical uh, funeral here. There's beautiful flowers. There's a nice video montage with some nice music. Um, it's a celebration of life. Like, those are some of the things that we experience here in our funerals. Uh, that, that is not the scene, Okay. Ancient Near Eastern funerals uh, are a wailing session, okay? There were no flowers. Do you know Christians were the first ones to, to bring flowers to funerals, okay, because of the hope of the resurrection? Um, so it, it is dark. It, the women are leading the procession. In, in Jewish history, now this is, this is Jewish history, not Brian Berger right now, okay, ladies? But the idea was that in, in Genesis, women brought death through rebellion into the world, and so they led death out of the city as the, the procession, the funeral procession went. So you have all the women of the town leading the procession, and then you have uh, the body, this young man. This young man would have been at home being prepared by his mother. The body was being prepared, bathed. Uh, ointment and prepared, and, and there was not like a nice casket. 
it was a beer. It was, it was an open basket. And so the body with arms crossed is being carried out, and the widow is with the body. Now, behind the widow was professional mourners. Like, this was an actual, this was an actual job that they would call out to the crowd to wail and, and, and mourn with this widow, and they would yell, and people would cry, and it was loud. There were horns and flutes that would play. It was, it was lament. And here's this Jesus crowd, tired and thirsty, and here comes this loud, lamenting parade or procession. What do we know about this woman? We know she had a son. It was very, it was very much seen as a blessing, like God had favor on you because you have a son. Why? In this culture, ladies' identity was wrapped up in their man. First their father, then a husband, and then, if you were so blessed, a son. Now, with these men came status. As they had status, the ladies had status. As they had possessions, we had possessions. And the culture viewed how God loved you by the success or flourishing of your man or your family. Okay? So when it says that this woman lost her one and only son, that is a huge hit. Not only relationally, not only the devastation of missing and being close to and loving a son, that's devastating. But the son represents her retirement, her 401k, her social security, her health care, her provision into her old age to death is wrapped up in this son. And so we know that this story is even sadder, that this is a woman who's lost her one and only son. She's lost the one that will take care of her. And the story gets sadder. This woman was a widow, which means she already lost her husband. A Jewish family community would have thought, what? Who sinned? This woman or her son that she is like this? It was the shame on our culture, the idea of, of death and, and despair. If you're not flourishing, God must be cursing you. What did this woman do? to deserve this. She must have done something very awful. And so there's this mourning, but there's also this shame and this deep sense of loss, almost to the point of, of death. Maybe not almost to the point, to the point of death. Now, we today think of death as like, when my heart stops, I'm dead. When my brain stops functioning, I'm dead. In Jewish culture, the idea of death was there's a living death. Like there's a threshold of life that when you drop below it, you're no longer alive. You're experiencing a living death. We see it in uh, the book of Ruth. Naomi, whose name meant pleasant, lost her family, and she was experiencing a living, a living death. Verse 13 and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion. This is very significant. We're going to see this pattern all throughout Scripture as we go through this book. He saw her, and his seeing 
moved him with compassion. Now, we sometimes mix up sympathy and empathy and compassion, and we kind of put them all together. Uh, Sympathy is like, oh, gosh, I'm sorry to hear that. That must be really hard. It's sympathy. I feel bad for you in your situation. Empathy is, I've, I've experienced that. I really feel bad for you, and I know exactly how that feels, and it is awful. I'm so sorry. Compassion is something different and moves past sympathy and empathy. Compassion is, I'm seeing that person. I'm so distraught with their situation that my heart, my heart is going out to them. My heart is moving into them. And compassion propels me into your situation. Not to escape your suffering and ignoring it, but I begin to suffer with you. Do you see the difference? And it's shaped, and we'll see it in Jesus' life time and time again, that our compassion is shaped by seeing. So let's pause in the story real quick. Are there things on the news where you just feel like, I got to turn it? Like, this hurts my heart so bad to see what's happening uh, maybe it's, maybe it's a, a parent that's lost a child. Maybe it's uh, some devastating uh, consequences of war, uh, wounded soldiers. Uh, just this last week and the devastation of our first responders, our police officers that have been killed just this week in the valley and, and seeing the pictures with the families, your heart just is, is breaking. And it's one thing to hear that an officer is down. It's another thing to see the picture of that officer with his wife and his kid, right? It shapes my response more. We're going to see that Jesus' eyes are filled with people and that when he sees them, his heart is moved to compassion. His heart moves towards them and he moves in to love and to help. I have to, I have to say... It's been a, a little bit of a rough week around here. There's been, there's, in this congregation, there's really tough stuff going on. Like devastating, distress, hard stuff. And I think sometimes when you're in it, you can wonder, what is the expression of God right now? Does God care? Does He see me? Is he, where is He in this? And it's comforting for me, and I hope it will be for you, to know that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is Yahweh in flesh. And when He comes upon this scene, His expression in His body, in His face, in His eyes, is compassion. He sees us in our suffering, and He moves towards us in our suffering to suffer with us. Let's go back to the scene. Jesus says something I think is a little bit odd. He says to her, do not weep. It seems completely appropriate to weep. She's lost her one and only son. She's already lost her husband. She's lost status. She's lost community. She's lost her confidence in the favor of God. She's lost 
her retirement and Social Security and provision. She's lost everything. She's in a living death. And this rabbi says, don't weep. The only time I say don't weep as a parent is when I know it's going to be okay. Right? I told 8 o'clock, there was one time where I said don't weep, and I thought it was going to be okay, and it wasn't, and it kind of burned me. I told my daughter, your ankle's okay. Get back out there and play. You're just hurt. You're not injured. There's a difference, right? I said, don't cry. Get back out there and compete. So she goes out there, and she does what her dad says. She comes off, takes her shoe off at night, and her whole foot is black. And I was like, oh, you know what? No, you were injured. <laughs> you should have been crying. You have a torn ligament. My bad. Yeah. <laughs> But other than that, I only say don't cry when I know it's okay. Jesus knows it's going to be okay. He has moved to her. He, he can tell her don't weep because he's close. There's probably, um, I don't know, maybe 800, 900 people in this room. Okay, so let's, let's triple this. This is 3,000. And then let's add maybe like another, like this section over here is coming out. And that's the crowd. I mean, this is massive. There's a lot of people. And she can hear him say, don't weep. What does that mean? He, he's moved right up alongside her in the procession. He's walking with the widow. He's locked into her. And you can almost feel the presence of Jesus saying, walking with her, don't weep. And then he moves past her up to the body. How does he stop? How does he stop the procession? He touches the beer. Now, if you would watch me try and coach Little League, I do not have this kind of power to say, take a knee, boys. And everybody just goes, I wish, right? I'm like, hey, guys, eyes up here, Tyler, over here. And then as soon as I get Tyler locked in, I look over here, and that kid's not looking anymore, and I go, hey, look over here, guys, right? It's a sign of weakness. When the president of the United States is present, he doesn't have to go, hey, hey, guys, everybody sit down. He does something like this. And everybody gets quiet and sits down. Jesus, the creator of the world, in, the, in his glory and weight and power and strength, with just a touch of the beer, stops hundreds of people in their track, and they all stare at Jesus. What's he going to do? Now, we know from Genesis that Yahweh speaks and creation obeys. Let there be light, and there was light, right? He creates, he separates the skies, uh, the heavens above and the heavens below, the oceans, the land, and he does it all with his voice in Genesis 1 and 2. And now Yahweh incarnate speaks. He says, young man, I say to you, arise, and creation obeys. And the young man starts to speak. Now, this is really important. 
Jesus, what did he do when the boy rose? Look at 15. And Jesus gave him to his mother. This whole miracle scene uh, begins with Jesus seeing the widow in a crowd. And his heart is moving towards her, and he walks alongside her. He tells her, don't cry. He moves, and he solves her problem. The thing that's thrown her into a living death is her son's death. And he raises the son, and what does he do with the son? He gives the son to her. He's locked into the widow from the very beginning to the very end. And there's no sense that at the end of this, he says, now, have you seen what I've done? You say a great prophet has risen among you, that Yahweh has visited his people. You've been waiting for over 400 years, the silence of the prophets in this town. And just like Elijah, in this very space where this son has been risen, the prophet Elijah had risen a son there in that same community hundreds of years ago, and they'd talked about it, and now they see it again. Yahweh is back. Jesus, tell them the good news. You've built the platform. You've done the good deed. Now deliver the gospel. That's the end of the story. God has visited His people. They were amazed. They were glorifying God. And Jesus is not so concerned about the miracle, is He? Who or what is He concerned with? The widow. What, are his, what, are the, what is the crowd's eyes filled with? The miracle. There was, that boy was dead. And now he's alive and he's talking. Jesus was not filled with that. Jesus was filled with the excitement that through this resurrection, he has brought this woman out of the pit, out of a living death, to experience life. If you're like me, uh, my eyes are on a lot of things, tasks, TV, uh, email, social media, our shows, our kids. There's a lot of stuff that we get distracted with. Jesus was not distracted. His eyes were filled constantly with people. Now, I want you to uh, consider that the point of the miracle was love. The point was not showing off His power. I think that's obvious. Um, sometimes I hear this. You can love your neighbor and fulfill the royal law, but if you don't share the gospel with them, it's pointless. Like, don't even do it. There's this deal that we have to take a good work, and if we don't crown it with evangelism, this is not a good work. It's useless. Okay? Okay, now as we're slowing down and looking at this scene, is that true? I, I had a friend that moved into town from out of town when my daughter was in, in uh, <clears throat> kindergarten. 
And I was going through these blessed rhythms of like seeing and compassion and serving and trying to bless people. And this family from out of town, they have no friends. I'm like, this is it, Julie. This is our, this is our blessed project, this family. We're going to love them. We're going to get them connected to people we know. We're going to invest in them. And we did it, and we did it well. They were like family almost immediately. And then one night he said, hey, I really need to talk about some stuff. Can we go out to dinner? And I'm like, yes, this is it. We've loved him so well. Tonight's the night we go gospel. And he basically confesses like emptiness and struggle and all of this stuff. And for three hours, I explained all of his problems through the lens of sin. I went Jesus stories, restoration, woman at the well, we're going through all of it. And, I'm, and the whole time, I'm just praying like, I can't believe this is happening. This is incredible. At the end of the night, he goes, Brian, thank you so much for listening. I know exactly what you're saying. I appreciate the wisdom. I just don't believe any of it. And I was like, Ugh. Do you know, almost the next morning, I had no desire to love him. It wasn't that I hated him. It was like all of that stuff was just to get to that conversation, and he rejected it, and now I'm moving on. Who's the next project? And then I read this. Right? Love is not something we use to get to a conversation. Love is the essence of eternal life. The life that has existed before mankind was created was love. God is love. And it's why we need a trinity, to be honest. If God preexisted all of us and He is love, if He is only one person, who is he loving for all eternity? I don't know. He can't. He's self-absorbed. But he is Trinity. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. And they've been doing this dance of love a long time before us. And they've invited humanity in to share in this love. Father-loving Son, Son-loving Spirit, Spirit-loving Father. And now they've poured out their love on humanity, and humanity has rebelled against it. And they've failed to dance, and they've made it about them. And so Yahweh, God is love, and love came and dwelt among us, and you saw it in his interaction with the widow. It started with looking, it moved to his heart, and then he went towards them. By the way, you're going to see this pattern in Jesus' life. He saw the great crowd. He felt compassion for them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. He saw the crowd. He felt compassion for them because they'd been with him three days and they haven't had anything to eat. And if he sent them home, they would all die. So he broke the bread and the fish and he multiplied it. And there were baskets full of food. Why? Because he saw them and he was compassionate and he moved towards them. He's on the cross and they're hurling insults and he sees the people and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Seeing begets compassion, begets love. It's almost an instruction book. 
And then when he tells us, what does it look like to love God and to love your neighbor? The eternal life, the essence of eternal life. What does it look like? Love God, love neighbor. Who do, who's my neighbor? He says, let me tell you a story. There was a Samaritan who was walking by, and there was this man that was beat up. All the other religious rulers saw the man beat up and left for dead and turned away and walked away. The essence of love was in this Samaritan. And what, how did Jesus describe it? He saw the man. He had compassion. He moved towards him. And Jesus' teaching is lining up with Jesus' life. By the way, when Jesus, nobody has seen the Father. Nobody has seen God. But the one and only Son has made him known to us. As we reflect on Jesus, we see the Father Jesus is telling a story about his father. Nobody knows his father, only Jesus. Jesus says, let me tell you a story about a father. And he tells the prodigal son. This rebellious son takes off. He's humbled by life. He's wasted away everything. And he returns to his father. How does Jesus describe his father? His father in the story sees him and has compassion and runs to him and brings him in, celebrates fattened calf, ring, robe, shoes, everything. My son was lost, now he's found. When Jesus describes his father, see compassion, love. When Jesus describes what humanity is supposed to be, see compassion, love. When Jesus interacts with people, seeing compassion, love. When his church is filled with his spirit and you are being reshaped into his image, what should the church be known by? Our love. We see people. Our heart is moving into their suffering and we go towards them. We don't always know what to say. We don't always know what to do. But we know we're going to enter into their suffering together with them. This is holy humanity. It's what humanity looks like when it's been made righteous. And that's the project of sanctification. You are God's workmanship. He's doing that in you. As you get connected to one another, as you pray and connect to God daily, as you abide in His love and enjoy that love, this is what He's forming in us, that we would be a reflection of His love to others. So here's your assignment. Keep your head up. Keep your head up and see people this week. I would start with your spouse if you're married. Okay? We're going fig- to take a little journey and you're going to figure out why maybe, why we don't love. But I want you to look at your spouse I want you to see their story. What do they struggle with? What are the insecurities? Why do they do that? And I want you to feel compassion and move towards them to help instead of judging them, instead of being disgusted with them. Kids, your parents are people, students, okay? They're doing the best they can. They have their own story. And sometimes we just assume that when you grow up, you're going to have all the answers. You're going to do it perfectly. Your parents struggle and are in their own story. Students and people with parents in the room, see your parents. Quit judging them. 
see them, have compassion, move towards them, love them. That person at work that annoys you, I don't have any here. (laughs) I am assuming you do. See them. Have compassion. Fill your eyes with them and their life and their story. And move towards them. That's your assignment. Your next assignment is to read the next chapter. I believe it's chapter 3. Let me pray, and then we're going to go into a time of communion. Father in heaven, we are the recipients of this grace. We have received and beheld the glory of God on earth in the form of Jesus, and He has manifested love in ways that make us pause and say, that's beautiful. This is beautiful. The pattern of Jesus' life is beautiful, and Lord, it's just a reflection of Your very character and nature. And as we are reshaped into this, we need to be reminded that it is not in our flesh or strength to do this on our own. We need each other. We need your spirit. We need to attach ourselves to the vine that will bear the fruit of love in our lives. So I pray we'd be on it. We'd spend a lot of time on our knees this week. We'd spend a lot of time in your word and in prayer and enjoying you and your beauty. And that naturally we would become transformed into the people who love well. Help us to see the people. And I pray, Lord, that our neighbors might even take a step back and pause and recognize the beauty of love. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.